Glad you've chosen to come together with us this morning. It's exciting when we uh, get to see follow through with baptism. It's neat to see uh, a, a good crowd here of Gardner Webb students supporting their uh, fellow student, and that's a, a good thing. We're thankful for that, and we're thankful for obedience. Um, you know, as I think of our ministry here at Pleasant City Church and what uh, my ministry uh, mainly entails, it's uh, the importance of getting in community and getting in connection. And of course, you know, if you're not in any type of connect group, we, we feel like you're missing out. Our, our goal is to, to have you come in here, come into these rows but we really want to get you into circles because we really feel like life happens in circles. And we call those circles connect groups here at our church. Um, well, something that came up in one of our connect groups that will help me introduce this message this morning is several weeks ago, we were going through the book of James with a group of young marrieds here at our church. And one thing we came up with in the book of James was there's that phrase where it says, don't be doers of the, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And the idea of that word hearing was interesting because it had to do with just hearing information. And the, the, the thought on that idea of hearing is to audit. And I remember when I, I, I was in college several years ago, some students went through college and they just audited, or not college, but through a class and they would audit the class. And I thought, well, why would you do that? And you'd pay for it. But when you audited the class, you'd, you'd not uh, take any tests, you'd not write any papers, not take any quizzes, you'd just take in information. And the idea of auditing really comes clearer when we think of we hear the word, but we don't do the word. And, and sometimes as we think of the, the life of the follower of Christ, we're just auditing the life. We're not really doing the life. And, and this message this morning hopefully will challenge us to, to be doers of the word and to be doing things from what this sermon brings. And I will tell you, you're going to uh, hear the, the greatest sermon ever this morning because we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus spoke that sermon. You're not going to hear the greatest sermon from me, but you will hear the sermon Jesus preached probably well, I'm sure he did it a different way than I will this morning, but it's in Matthew chapter 5, so if you'd go there, please, notice with me these attitudes that Jesus gave to followers of Christ. So, so in this great sermon, we're going to see what it entails to walk as a doer of the word, not just hear the word. Notice what it says in Matthew 5. It says, and seeing the multitudes, he went up in the mountain. So that, of course, is Jesus. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying. And he gives them attitudes here, eight, that are, are, are important for us to seek to follow. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verses 11 and 12 pulled all together. Blessed are you... When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, 
Be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we introduce this and as we think of these attitudes, the idea of blessed is given here. Now, another word for blessed is, is happy. And the idea when you're happy, there's a blissfulness in your life, there's a joy in your life. But, but this Sermon on the Mount gives us principles that are, is, is genuine happiness, is genuine blessedness. Jesus uses this word, blessed, to, to refer to more than a superficial happiness. But in this context, blessedness refers to a state of spiritual well-being and prosperity. Prosperity. This is a, a, a happiness that's deep within your soul. Happiness that you're satisfied, you're fulfilled in living out these attitudes we see in Matthew 5. And when we think of blessedness, it's that, that inner satisfaction, that sufficiency, it doesn't depend on what's going on around us. Well, it's a pretty day, I'll be happy. Well, it's raining today, I won't be so happy. Um, I'm off today, so I'll be happy. You know, the idea is that there, there's an inward peace that comes, a joy, because you're living out these attitudes. A couple commentators say this about this idea of blessedness, happy, fortunate, blissful. It speaks more than a surface emotion. Jesus is describing the divinely bestowed well-being that is only available to those who are faithful. William Barclay says it this way, joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. Putting on these attitudes brings biblical joy. So let's go through these this morning. Blessed in verse 3, or happy are the humble, the poor in spirit. The idea of being poor in spirit is the idea of being uh, one who's uh, living out humility. And it's interesting that this is first because I think it's a foundational thought here. This grace is, uh, leads to all the others. Um, those who would build high must begin low. One who is poor in spirit, one who is humble, recognizes that they're poverty-stricken apart from God. There's a lostness, there's a hopelessness, there's a helplessness without Jesus. In fact, Scripture tells us that we're to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and, and then he lifts us up. One who is, is, is poor in spirit, who is happy as a humble person, is one who's acknowledged that they're helpless, that they're hopeless without the Lord Jesus. You know, we read often Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it talks about presenting ourselves a living sacrifice, and that's important. But, but listen to what verse 3 says. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. There's an attitude that, you know, you're not all it, but because of Christ you're able to walk in a way and see your identity in him. Of course, we know the opposite of humility is pride. The root of sin. Pride doesn't give us room for trusting God or others. When we're prideful, of course, we make it about ourselves. 
Um, pride. Listen to these comparisons here. Pride postpones reconciliation. Humility admits mistakes. Sometimes it's hard for us to say, I was wrong. Forgive me. But when there is that attitude, there's a, a humbleness about you. Pride produces misunderstandings. Humility gives insight. Pride produces standoffs. Humility produces solutions. Pride provokes arguments. Humility brings peace. Pride builds walls of disagreement. Humility bridges to diplomacy. Pride prevents intimacy. Humility builds closeness. Pride promotes oneself. Humility promotes others. Pride sees himself as a form of God. Humility recognizes that God is God and he alone is God. So when we're poor in spirit, we demonstrate a humility that comes from the Lord and it really makes you attractive to be around. Now, it doesn't mean you're not worth anything either. Some people, well, if I'm going to be poor in spirit, well, it's poor little old me. I can't do anything. You know, it's not that attitude either. The attitude that, that we, we, we gather again from this is that humble person, this is in your notes, realizes that they're helpless without Jesus and they trust him with their life. Be doers of humility. Realize that we're helpless without Jesus. Trust Jesus rather than ourselves. James is a good cross-reference here, too. In James 4, verses 7 through 10, it will come up on the screen for you. Let me read it to you. It says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the humble. There's a second in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the attitude here for mourning, of course, we know what mourning is, a grief, a, a sadness. But what, the point is that comes from this sermon is that there's a, there's a brokenness, there's a sorrow because of sin. The attitude comes because you realize how horrible sin is. You begin to see sin the way God sees it. And when you're one who has a godly mourning over their sins, you never take the attitude that you're going to just cover up your sin or blame it on others or, you know, I didn't really do this. It was a disorder I have. You know, there's a, there's a depravity that you come with, that you're born with, that you're a sinner. And, and one who recognizes that is comforted in that fact when there's a brokenness over their sin. There's a godly mourning. In your notes it says, those who learn to mourn over their sin find the heart of God. They, they find an intimate fellowship with God that the very foundation is true happiness in their life. There's a, there's a genuine intimacy. Of course, notice how this follows humility. Humility is needed to have a brokenness over your sin. Uh, 
Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Notice this cross-reference as we think of the, the opportunity that will be before us when there is that proper view of, of mourning in your life. For you see, God will wipe away all your tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, in verse 5. Uh, another word for meekness would be, would be gentleness here. Now, understand this. Meekness does not mean that you're feeble. Or doesn't mean that you're spineless or that you're, you're wimpy or soft. You know, it, it's a cool word when we research the word. The idea means that strength brought under control. That's the idea of meekness here, of gentleness. In fact, the word picture that's used for this is like a, a wild horse that has been brought under subjection, that has been broken. Of course, that horse still has the same strength, the same vitality, the same drive, but it is broken to the point that they become uh, usable. Meekness. Listen to this. A gentleness that involves carefully chosen words that soothe strong emotions. Words that are just tactful. I remember teaching school in my uh, early 20s. And, you know, in that day, uh, I didn't know very, I still don't know very much, but my classrooms were kind of wild and out of control. They were like wild horses. Um, not Well, sometimes. But I remember uh, uh, being a first-year teacher, one of the things that you didn't look forward to, at least I didn't, were parent-teacher conferences. And I remember really messing up in my senior government class that I taught because, you know, I was just a few years older than some of these uh, seniors in class. And I remember uh, really uh, messing up the, the grading. Somehow I messed up the grading. Uh, it's not because I gave everybody all A's, I, you know. But, but I remember one of the things that was helpful, and I, I did this very genuinely at the time, but, but I remember I would pray with the family. It was a Christian school when they'd come in for the conference. And of course, in my prayer, I, you know, recognized the, 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 the feebleness of, of my, my teaching and the understanding that because I was, uh, just didn't do it, it was able to kind of, in that case, disarm the, the parents. And they were like, we can't really use strong and hard emotions to him. He's just prayed for us. And he's realized how weak he... Anyway, the idea was that... I don't know why I even said that. I didn't have that in my notes. See, when I don't have it in my notes, I always get in trouble. Gentleness, meekness, ointment that takes the sting out of a wound. Have you ever had words that were like that in your life? They just kind of... Man, that really encouraged me. That really made me at peace with the situation. Ointment that takes the sting out of the wound. This is the idea of gentleness. Tenderness to those who are afraid or in pain. Politeness, tactfulness, courtesy, a respect. And of course, we know that the Lord Jesus was the great modeler of, of gentleness, of meekness. You know, and I, hey, guys, there's nothing wrong with being gentle. And, and meek. I think sometimes we become so abrasive that we never attract. What's wrong with you? Can't you do anything right? 
late again. These are my lines. But the idea is that an abrasiveness gets us in trouble, and it's no room for that in the Christian life. Jesus told us, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Having a humility toward God, toward others, uh, meekness comes. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you have received. Excuse me. Walk worthy of the calling which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness. Did you get that? With long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Meekness. Gentleness. Moses, great leader of Israel. The Bible says in Numbers 12, verse 3, was very meek more than all the people that were on the face of the earth. So again, meekness is a good thing. Gentleness is a meek thing. And then I come across this, and it's really cool because in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter gives us a, a, a challenge. And he says this, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, why are you so joyful? Well, you give a reason for your joy because of Christ. But, but what he says in this passage, I think sometimes we overlook. It says, but do this with gentleness and respect. You know, don't pound people with the gospel. You know, you know do it in a way that it's, it, it, it's loving and gentle. Of course, don't water it down. But the attitude of humility, the attitude of, of gentleness is, is a must here. Meekness will make you an effective, meekness will make you an attractive witness. Stay with me, there's still uh, several more here. But in verse 6, we, we, we see a, another attitude that, that the Lord blesses. Happy are the hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And of course, at times we get hungry. Uh, and it's a natural impulse. Every living thing it gets hungry. So the comparison is made here by the Lord Jesus. You be so hungry for truth, you be so hungry for the Lord that you want him. You want him as much as, as food. In fact, the psalmist talks about that, that he'd rather have a relationship with Jesus, with the Lord, than, than with with, with even food. And of course, I'm a picture of one who likes food. Um, but it should be uh, something that we do in moderation. Swindoll, not Swindoll, Spurgeon. This is what he said about uh, this idea of hungering and thirsting. God will fill them. And when he fills men with his fullness, they are, are full indeed. Let God Fill you up. You know, never be satisfied with just a little bit of the Lord. Want all of him. Want a, a, a full meal with Jesus. Now, at the end of this sermon, uh, it actually goes in chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're not going to cover all that this morning, obviously. But, but at the very end in chapter 7, listen to what the Lord says here. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Now, now that's a, a, a humbling verse when you think about the fact that, you know, here's people who were probably uh, doing things for the Lord, but it wasn't a heart change. There wasn't a genuine hunger and thirst for him. And the, the, the result is the Lord Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. In your notes, righteousness consists of right behavior which is only accomplished through a close walk with God. Otherwise, we find ourselves pleasing others rather than God. You know, as we think of a close, what's that look like? What's a, a close walk with Jesus look like? Well, it involves spending time with him. It's, it, it, it involves meditating on him. It involves praying uh, to him. And I know I started thinking as we talked about connect groups and the importance of those. But, but what a great place to learn to grow, to learn to pray, to, to do life together and, and study God's word together. And it's important uh, to, to realize that those help with our close walk with him. Now, there's a reference that goes along with this in 2 Timothy 2 verse 22. It says this, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness Faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So again, our pursuing of him, doing it in a pure way, is vital to grow in Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, before we move on to the next thought here, don't start with the desire to behave well. Start with the desire to be in a relationship with him and let that work from the inside out. Have a passion for the right things involves first and foremost being passionate about Jesus himself. And you know, when there's a thirst for righteousness, you know, you'll be a person who walks in honesty. You, you'll, you'll be a, a, a person of integrity. You, you, you tell the truth. You, you don't settle for, for gossip and and, and people who, who want to just spread stuff about other people, you are one who just really is, is about the Lord and about his business. Be hungry and thirsty for him. Number five, happy are the, the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And you know, when we're merciful people, we're forgiving people. We're, we're compassionate people for those in need. You know, the Lord's Prayer is also found in this sermon in chapter 6. And we, we hear the Lord's line in the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's mercy again. We're happy, we're blessed, we're merciful. And when we are that, we put God on display. God's mercy is the withholding of a just punishment. God's mercy, withholding a just punishment. And of course, if you're saved here this morning, he has shown you mercy. Titus 3, 5 says, he saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of 
his mercy. Mercy. Having a passion for people in need. People who hurt. People who suffer misery and pain. People who are in distress. People who are in sorrow. Be merciful, people. I know growing up in a big family, a family of eight, there were times where we just weren't real merciful people. It was just kind of that way. You know, we had two girls and then six straight boys. I was on the tail end of the uh, boy part. And uh, I remember uh, one year, I had to be like five or six years old, and I had a line in the Christmas program. <clears throat> Sunday night Christmas program, you know, we had one of those little Baptist churches, and, and uh, you know, everybody had a, at least that was what Mrs. Cook made us do, have a line in the Christmas program, and I remember my line. To this day, I have my line down. What does his name mean to us? Pretty simple, right? Five, six years old, and, you know, I, I've worked on it for weeks, and I, I finally come to the Christmas program, and I have my line, and I get up there, and, you know, I'm this short little fat kid. I'm not a lot's changed. And uh, I, I get up there and I, 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 I can still remember I had a little red vest on. And, and uh, you know, and I bombed it. I was like, and I, I just couldn't get it out. Mrs. Cook, come on, Gary, you can do it. And my face starts getting red. And, you know, I wet my pants. I didn't wet my pants, but I probably could have. <laughs> but, but I remember I, I sat there and I just couldn't. And I just ended up sitting down. So here's the mercy part. We get in the car. You know, we have one of those Buick station wagons. And we get in the car. And on the way home, man, did I just get abused verbally. Man, you sure butchered that one. You know. <laughs> and the funny thing was, remember how you used to get that little box of candy at Christmas? with the, uh, You know, there, in our church, we got a couple pieces of chocolate and then some hard candy, which we usually just threw out. And then an apple and an orange, we threw that out too. And I remember, I didn't even get to enjoy my candy. They stole my candy too. And you talk about the meanness that come out of that, that night. I, and I, it scarred me for life. I'm still scarred. Can't you tell? But, but the fact is, there is just not mercy in that situation. And, you know, what a, and of course, what, what I kind of think back, my, my parents were in the front seat, and they just kind of let it happen. You know, I'm thinking, man, they, but... All that to say, mercy needs to be in our lives. Too, too often there's mean and not enough mercy. God wants us to be rich in mercy. Listen to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. It says, For God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Be rich in mercy. You've been forgiven much. Show mercy. You know, again, we're mean often and we don't show mercy. Be merciful. And then there's number six, happy or blessed is the pure in heart. The pure in heart. Being pure is having motives that are unmixed, having thoughts that are holy, 
and a conscience that is clear. When you're pure in heart, you do the right things for the right reasons. To be pure. It has to do with without wax. And I remember Henry Blackaby helped me understand this better. The idea of without wax, uh, back in the day, you know, people, merchants would go to the market and would, would sell. And in some cases, they would sell pots not marijuana, but they were selling pots, and these were clay pots made out of clay, and sometimes these pots were damaged. And when they were damaged, the merchant that was not pure would put wax in his pots and then cover them up and make them look like they're the real thing, that they're genuine. Well, of course, Delora goes home and uses that pot and starts to cook, you know, the wax melts. She says to Willard, Willard, they got me on this pot. It's leaking. And the idea is that that, that that pot was damaged. It wasn't pure. It wasn't genuine. And that's the idea of this word. To, when you're pure, you're genuine. You're without wax. So God doesn't want you to have anything in your life that's, that can be questioned. That's not pure. When you're pure, you're, you're clean, you're blameless, you're unstained from guilt. The pure-hearted person is marked by transparency and an unwavering desire to please God in all things. It's more than an external purity of behavior, and it's, a, it's an, internal, an internal purity of the soul. And, of course, we can be pure when we give our life to Jesus. In Psalm 51, we read, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David, in this season of his life, had really messed up, and he realized that he was far from God. And his heart was, uh, was not right. It was not pure. His heart had some wax in it, so to speak. And he cries out to God and says, create in me a pure heart. Of course, God does. And he asks for a spirit that's, that's steadfast. He asks for joy back, and God gives it to him. So again, blessed are the pure in heart, for you'll see God. And see, there's, there, there's a, a reality of, 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 a, of a connection with the Lord Jesus when you're pure. You know, you, 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 you hear him speak. You, you, you understand what his word's saying to you. Happy are the peacemakers, verse 9. They should be called the sons of God. Now, this doesn't mean you avoid conflicts. This doesn't mean that you're easygoing, relaxed, that you're just going to keep the peace. When a controversial issue comes up at the office, well, I'm, you know, I'd rather not get involved. You, you, you're not willing to take a stand. But the idea is that you, you, you are aggressive in making peace. Psalm 34 tells us that we're to part from evil and do good and that we're to seek peace. Romans tells us as much as was possible that's in us to live at peace with everyone. And then I love this passage in, in 1 Peter because it really just lays it out for us. So, uh, a really cool thought on peace here. But it says, if you want to love life, so the, the mandate Peter's giving here, you want, to, you want to really enjoy what you're doing in life? Well, this is what you do. You refrain your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So you watch what you say. 
And then you turn from evil and do good. So you do the opposite of what evil is. And then it says, let him seek peace and pursue it. So there's a, a three-point thought here when it comes to being one who loves life. You, you watch what you say, you watch what you do, and you become an aggressive peacemaker. You, you don't start fights, you seek to stop fights. Don't be a troublemaker, be a peacemaker. What's the Lord want from us as peacemakers? Well, first of all, to be at peace with ourselves, to be constructed and positive with our words, rather than destructive and negative. And then in verses 10 through 12, we see the last attitude. Blessed are the harassed. Blessed are the persecuted. And you know, sometimes when we do what God wants us to do with our lives, we will face mistreatment and persecution. In fact, the genuine follower of Jesus will face that. In 2 Timothy, Timothy tells us, everyone who wants to live a life that's godly will be persecuted. So it comes when you're following Christ. The way to endure, though, is to look beyond the present pain and hold on to the promises that Jesus gives us about the future. Jesus said in John 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be a good cheer. I have overcome the world. Isn't that a promise that really helps us hold on to life? Hey, trouble's coming, but I've overcome it. I'll give you a way to overcome as well. So, application. When we choose to be blessed, we put on these attributes that Jesus gives us in this great sermon. We pull in close to Jesus, and we make good choices. We choose humility, constantly ask for forgiveness. And when pride does pop up, we remember and remember what Jesus did as he humbled himself and gave his life for us. We choose to mourn over our sin and show forgiveness. We're gentle. We hunger and thirst for him in his way, and then mercy saturates our life because we're pure, because you're real. You're that person who people want to be around because you really are living out Christ. Peace is in your life, and when the harassment does come, you look to the future and realize that it will be worth it all. These attitudes represent an outlook radically different from the world. The world praises pride, not humility. The world endorses sin. The world, friends, is at war with God while God is seeking to reconcile his enemies and make them his children. And you know what? He's using us, and he wants to use us to help that reconciliation take place. We've been put here for that reason. You know, if you jump down to the uh, next part of the Sermon on the Mount, it says this in verse 14 through 16. And 16 should come up on the screen, but, but you probably remember singing this if you grew up in, a, in church. But it says, you're the light of the world. Remember singing this little light of mine? Well... That's the idea of this verse here. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You can't hide it on a bushel stack. 
nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then Jesus tells us, and we do this when we live out these attitudes. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truths of your word that give us light to how you want us to live life. And Lord, as I think of this sermon that you shared with us some 2,000 years, well, you you shared with the disciples some 2,000 years ago, and now it's relevant to our lives today, that it can be applied to our lives. Lord, we, we can impress the world, but we're not impacting the world, and often it's because we're not living out these attitudes. So I just pray that we'd be able to hold on to some of these truths that we've been reminded of this morning, and may, Lord, we just live out these truths in a way that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with